Please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 11. Book of Zechariah, chapter 11. That's two books to the left of Matthew. We'll be uh, continuing our study here, ending the, 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 the section that we are in, the first burden of the word of the Lord. And as you turn there, I'm going to open us up in prayer. Lord, we just, uh, we need your spirit to give us strength. We need you to do what only you can do. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray that you would establish your word as that which creates causes and establishes reverence for you. And we, we ask you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. And now as we look at a terrible prophetic passage about how your own people would reject the Messiah, Lord, that we would learn, that we would see, that we would understand, and that we would not make that same error, that we would um, we would see Jesus, we would show us Christ, Lord, as we look at this, this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those of you who've been in this study of Zechariah, you, you probably by now have heard many times the, the layout of the book. And Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet, meaning he is ministering to a people who have returned from the exile in Babylon. And having returned, a meager group, they're attempting to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple. And in the first six chapters, Zechariah is given eight night visions to encourage the people. And that takes place before the temple is rebuilt. And then two years later, in chapter 7 and 8, they send a delegation asking questions, and they get four answers about fasting as the Lord teaches them about true worship, true religion, and what he wants from them. But then, starting in chapter 9, if you look at chapter 9 of Zechariah, the introduction formula now is the burden of the word of the Lord. And then you jump ahead to chapter 12, verse 1, and the burden of the word of the Lord. So chapters 1 to 6 are eight night visions. Chapters um, 7 and 8 is one question with four answers. And then chapters 9 through 14 are two burdens of the word of the Lord. We are finishing up the first. And the way the burdens work is the first one announces judgment. It starts with the nations surrounding, but it ends, it culminates in Israel, which is what we're looking at. And then the second burden talks about blessing and salvation starting with Israel and working out by the time we get to chapter 14 to all the nations. And we are now closing out this section. And, and if you remember from two weeks ago, because this is really part two of chapter 11, the drama of the rejected shepherd part two, I've called this Israel's darkest hour. Let's, let's look at what's taken place already. In the previous chapters of this burden of the word of the Lord, what we've seen is God promising to preserve and protect Israel in the face of Alexander the Great, in the face of other conflicts, Alexander walks by, Israel is spared, the Lord camps around her. In another later revolt under um, Maccabees, God promises to strengthen Israel, preserve them, judge the other nations, and then suddenly, seemingly in chapter 11, we get word of judgment for Israel itself without any, without any setup in verses 1 through 3. Open your doors, O Lebanon that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. For the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. 
The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. And so chapter 11 begins with an announcement of wailing, judgment, and ruination on Israel. And it's unexpected. It is truly unexpected, given that chapter 10 just ended with promises of blessing and prosperity. And so I think what Zechariah is trying to do, he grabs our attention with this unexpected announcement of judgment. And then the rest of the chapter, sort of like when you watch a TV show. You ever ever see a movie or a TV show that starts out with almost the end of the movie? You know, the, the battle... The battle's over, there's smoke, there's bodies lying everywhere, and then the rest of the movie catches you up to that point, explaining how you get there. That's kind of what's going on here. We get this unexpected, sudden announcement of judgment, and then as we read the story of the rejected shepherd, it becomes apparent why God is announcing judgment on Israel. And we saw last week that the way this works is that the Lord tells Zechariah to act out a drama. Um, God has spoken in many ways to our fathers, the author of Hebrews says, and one of the ways that he has spoken is through drama, through acting things out. You remember Hosea told to marry a a prostitute, to, to, to live out in front of Israel, God's relationship to an unfaithful wife in Israel. And Ezekiel was told to lie on his side for a time and, and to do other things and to bury his underwear and to dig them up. And it, it, there's, there are examples of this. And this is one of those, those strange times where God instructs his prophet not only to speak to the people, but to give them a sign or a symbol. It's, it's drama. That's what we're seeing. And so the Lord says in verse 4, thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So, Zechariah puts on the accoutrements, the gear of a shepherd in front of the people of his day. And the flock is, is defined as the flock that is doomed to slaughter. And we looked at that last week because they're being oppressed from without by foreign rulers. And inwardly, their own leaders are devouring them. The would-be shepherds, rather than protecting the flock, are devouring the flock. And we, we studied and understood that Zechariah is acting, is acting out, is personifying the Christ, the good, true shepherd, the shepherd who would come to Israel, Israel oppressed by Rome in, in Jesus' day, Israel oppressed from within by the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, who devoured widows' homes, who laid heavy burdens on people, would not lift their finger to lift them. And Jesus fought against them, just as it says here in verse 6, in one month I destroyed the three shepherds, and but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. And we looked at this last week, that despite the fact that the good shepherd comes and he tends to the flock and he battles the false shepherds, ultimately the flock rejects him. And we're going to see that even more clearly and more starkly in one of the most well-known, most quoted well-known passages in the New Testament. So let's just pick it up now, looking at verse 12. Let's just read verses 12 through 14. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So if you remember two weeks ago, he fights the shepherds and he's rejected by the flock 
And in response to that, he breaks one of his two staffs. He has two staffs that with which he tends to the flock. Favor, the Lord's favor, and union, and he breaks favor. The flock is no longer under the favor of the Lord. And then, in this second passage, he's going to break his second staff, union. So let's look at it, the rejection of the good shepherd. And then the drama plays out with three steps and begins with his request for payment. With his request for payment. And what the shepherd has done is he's, he's coming to the end of his ministry. In fact, the request for payment is an indication that he's coming to the end of his ministry. And he's not demanding it, and he's not a mercenary. He has already fulfilled his duties. He's already fulfilled his charge. The this, this shepherd is not saying, hey, well, I will come and I will shepherd you if you pay me. Rather, he performs the shepherding function. He tends to the flock. He battles the false shepherds. And then he turns to them and he says, if it's acceptable in your sight, you don't have to. He's not demanding it. Pay me my wages. Shepherds and farmers and everyone who works works in the hopes of some response. And what is what is in view here is, I think, as Jesus is ministering, what's he looking for? He's looking for faith. He's looking for fidelity. He's looking for humility. He's looking for repentance. He's looking for all the things he was looking for in in Israel in his day. He'd served among them for for three years publicly. And, and so the shepherd, towards the end of his ministry, after serving the flock, turns to the flock and says, if it's good in your sight, pay me my wages. But if not, keep them. This isn't a demand. He's going to serve either way. He's going to fulfill his ministry either way. His request for payment. And, and sort of an example of this, if you jump over to John 12, we see Jesus doing this very thing. In John's Gospel, this account that we're reading in John 12 is really the final public um, call of Jesus before he's arrested. Starting in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus goes up into the upper room, talks to the disciples. But here at the end of 12 is the end of Jesus' public ministry in, in John's gospel. And we see the Lord say something similar. Pick it up in, in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have light, believe in the light. You may become sons of light. So Jesus is saying, I only got a little bit more time. A little bit more time. While there's lights here, while I'm here, believe in me. Believe in me. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Keep your finger here in John. We'll come back to this passage. So his request is for payment. It's, he's not demanding it. It's optional. He's basically saying, what, what do you make of me? What do you estimate my services as? And then we see his contemptible wage. His contemptible wage. He doesn't demand it from them. He's not extorting them. He's already performed his function. He's already served them. He's turning to them and asking them, hey, if it's good in your sight, pay me what you think this is worth. And I think we all understand that there's sometimes can be a greater offense in a contemptible payment than a no payment at all. I think, um, from what I understand, those in the wait staff are more offended by a couple pennies as a tip than no tip at all. They could have done nothing. They could have paid the shepherd nothing. And instead, they weigh out for him. What does it say here? 
my wages 30 pieces of silver. Now, we, we don't have any context to understand how much is 30 pieces of silver. In Exodus 21.32, the law, Moses writes, if the ox gores a slave, a male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. 30 pieces of silver is the exact price for a slave. If you accidentally kill a slave, you pay out 30 pieces of silver. And so what the flock is saying, what those who are paying the shepherd are saying, to quote a commentator named Dodd, to offer this sum was therefore the equivalent of telling the shepherd of Israel that they could any day buy a common slave who would be as useful to them as he had been. How much do we esteem your ministry? How valuable is it to us? It's about as useful as any common slave and what they could do. That's, that's what we think of your worth. Here, here's 30 pieces of silver. And we understand that the Lord understands the contempt in this with the dripping irony with which he speaks of it. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter the lordly price at which I was priced by them. It's, it's, it's ironic. This is a contemptible payment. This is worse than no payment at all. This is utter contempt. This is meant to insult. And the Lord doesn't take it. He will not accept this type of insult. So he tells, finally, in, in point C, we've seen his request for payment, his contemptible wage, his act of judgment. The Lord doesn't tell Zechariah, acting as the good shepherd, to take this insult, to take and accept this contempt. Rather, he says, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, there's been a lot of debate over what on earth it means to throw it to the potter. And I think the simplest answer is this. We might have a common expression today, throw it to the dogs. The potter was one of the lowest, most humbled, working-class people. Potters and pottery is so cheap and so easy to make that when a potter messes up a pot that he's making, he simply throws it away and starts anew. And so here's one of the lowest and humblest of the working classes. Throw it to him. Maybe he can find some use for this, this lordly price. We're not entirely sure why the potter is in the temple. It's, some people have theorized that he had a stall there or he worked there. We, we don't know exactly why. What we know is the Lord tells him, throw it to the potter, and Zechariah finds the potter in the temple. But that itself is significant. Because what this means is that this act, remember, this is a drama. This is a sign act. This drama is being carried out publicly. Zechariah takes this money... 30 pieces of silver, real money, real, literally does it, and he throws it in the house of the Lord to the potter. It's done publicly. And it's also done in the presence of the two parties of the covenant. Of course, God can see everything God is everywhere, but where is God most specifically understood to be located personally? Well, it's in the temple. So he goes to the temple, a public place in the sight of all, in the presence of both parties of the covenant that God has made with Israel, and he casts it out there. Cast it out there as a sign of judgment. And then, then furthermore of this judgment, he takes his second staff and he breaks it. Verse 14, Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And so the first staff that is broken is the Lord's favor. The second staff is the union of Israel, the brother to brother. So what is, what is this referencing? What does this mean? Well, we said two weeks ago, the judgment announced in the first three verses of chapter 11 is the judgment that came 
and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Once we identified that the, the shepherd that Zechariah is personifying here is the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're looking for some judgment that follows Jesus' ministry. And there's a judgment that fits this very clearly and very closely, and it is the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in 70 AD. He, he comes in and just destroys it, takes the temple apart stone by stone, brick by brick. And here the shepherd casts the silver to the potter, and he breaks his staff. And after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Israel, as an actual people group, as a unified, cohesive people, is, is gone. Now listen to this from, from a commentator speaking about the breaking of the two staffs and this judgment. The breaking up of the nation into parties bitterly hostile to each other was one of the most marked peculiarities of the later Jewish history and greatly accelerated the ruin of the popular cause in the Roman War. See, when, when the siege mounted around Jerusalem inwardly, the, they were not unified. They were squabbling with themselves. The real insight is noted by a man named Dodds. The chronological sequence of the events, it will be observed, he writes, the breaking of the first staff preceded, and the breaking of the second staff succeeded, the final and contemptuous rejection of the shepherd by the people. This, too, is the historical order. The Jews had long been under foreign rule before they were scattered and lost coherence as a nation. And until really the 1940s, Israel was not a coherent people group, not a coherent nation. They were scattered here and there. The, the book of James begins. James, the scattered tribes of Israel. So this judgment, this union is broken. They stop being a nation. They stop being a people group. So this is this passage about the 30 pieces of silver, and this is a very heavy and discouraging passage. It's played out clearly. It's, it's quoted in the New Testament. Turn to, turn to Matthew 26. Let's see how this is played out. And you can notice, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, the sovereignty of God as he declares piece by piece, bit by bit, exactly what will happen. The, the specificity with which Scripture speaks. It's not just speaking in broad generalities, but in absolute specificity. So, so is this prophecy true? It is. Did Israel's Messiah, the true shepherd, come? He did. Did the true shepherd come? Did he tend to the flock and to the weak? Yes, he did. Did he battle false would-be shepherds? Yes, he did. You read the Gospels. He blasted them. Was he rejected by his own flock? Yes, he was. Was he estimated at a value worth of 30 pieces of silver? Well, let's read and find out. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And he may stop and say, Oh, wait a second. In Zechariah's example, they paid Zechariah. Here they give it to Judas, but the idea is the same. They're estimating his worth. You go, you see wanted posters and signs for notorious criminals and dangerous people, and there's high values, you know, wanted, dead or alive, you know, $50,000 here. What, what will you give me to betray him? We'll pay you what we pay for a common slave. It is contemptible. This is what he's measured at. This is the, the price for which Judas would betray him. Not a great riches, not some lordly price, not kingdoms and wealth without measure, but 30 pieces of silver is all it took for one of Jesus' inner circle to betray him. 
It's contemptuous. Let's move ahead a little bit to verse 47 of this chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me. While he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve with him, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, sees him. They came up at once and he said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him and Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So Judas is paid to betray Jesus and then here is the act of betrayal. Betraying him with a kiss. One of his close friends, one of his inner circle, a man that Jesus had invested three years of his life into, for 30 measly pieces of silver, betrays the author of life. Then, what about this being cast to the potter and into the temple? Keep, keep reading. Now we go to chapter 27, and we pick it up in the first verse. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to the pilot, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the money, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, of whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, I know there it says he's quoting Jeremiah. I won't, I won't go into this in length. There's two suggestions that I think both make sense. One is that, that Zechariah is building upon the same imagery in, in Jeremiah, and so grabbing both, he references Jeremiah. It's also possible that the scroll that contained this record multiple books in it would be the Jeremiah scroll that would also have Zechariah and other books. But you see the specificity. Matthew tells us this was to fulfill what was written. That Judas does indeed throw the money into the temple. It is used to buy a field for a potter. What about the last bit, the, the section about the, the shepherd turning and, and, and breaking the staff of union? Well, listen to this account of Jesus in, in Luke 21. Jesus does exactly that. He, he, he ends the unity of, of Israel. He predicts it, and it happens shortly after he is ascended to heaven. In Luke 21, verses 20 through 24, Jesus says this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city Depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
This is not Jesus predicting the destruction that comes at the end of the battle of Armageddon. This is a destruction and a judgment that comes prior to the time of the Gentiles, the time in which we now live, or what is referred elsewhere as the church age. Jesus absolutely predicts that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot, that Israel will be dissolved as a people until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, so this prophecy nails it. Everything predicted of this good shepherd and what he would do and what would be done to him is predicted. Absolutely. Sadly, the drama does not end here. Let's go back to Zechariah and, and pick up the end of the chapter. So the first stage of the drama is done. Zechariah dresses up as a shepherd, takes two staffs, he shepherds the flock, he battles false shepherds, he is rejected, he is esteemed as contemptible, he throws his lordly wages to the potter in the temple. All of this fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry. All of this accurately predicting the, the horrific, the horrific error of Israel in rejecting their Messiah. He came, he didn't require payment, but he served them looking for faith, looking for sheep who would hear his voice and follow him. There was a remnant, but by and large, the nation rejected him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. Sadly, that is not the end of this. The drama has a second act. Let's read verse 15. Arise, the foolish shepherd. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but delivers the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Wow. Things go from bad to worse. And you can see why I titled this Israel's Darkest Hour. It is a dark, dark hour when Israel rejects their Messiah and then when God gives them over to this Foolish, what the ESV says, shepherd. So I think we have to start by asking then, okay, who is Zechariah supposed to be personifying this time? What's not helpful is that the, uh, at least the ESV, and I think many other translations say, take again the, the, the tools, um, the equipment of a foolish shepherd. The Hebrew is more, take again the, the equipment of a shepherd, a foolish one. It's not as though the shepherd he portrayed before is the same person. This is a different person. He, he, he's not portraying a, a foolish shepherd twice. Rather, the second time he's portraying the foolish shepherd. Twice he's taking the gear and the accoutrements of a shepherd. It's not as though foolish shepherds have different equipment and gear than non-foolish shepherds. We'll see what personifies and identifies this person is rather his character and his, or his lack of character, better yet. His lack of care for the flock. So as we try to identify who this person is, We've got to ask ourselves, okay, after the rejection of the Messiah and after the destruction of Jerusalem, are there any biblical figures that come to mind who would potentially rise up to be a leader and yet so treat God's people? And I think the answer, um, we, we have more insight with the New Testament, but I think the answer for Zechariah looking back would be to Daniel 9, is that this is none other than the Antichrist. Listen to Daniel 9, which, which Zechariah would have had in his day. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That's, that's the death of Jesus. 
and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of one week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So the, the prince is cut off, an anointed one, a messiah, a Christ comes. That's all Hebrew, English, and Greek for the same thing, anointed one. A messiah comes and is cut off. And immediately there's this prince of the people, prince who is to come. I think that's really the only candidate here. God is going to raise up after the cutting off, after the rejection of the Messiah, another leader. Jesus himself alluded as much in his own ministry in John 5. He says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You will receive him. So here is the the anti-shepherd. And we get that clearly when we look at um, his character, which we'll see in a moment. But before we look at his character, I want you to notice point B, his divine appointment. His divine appointment. Who is it in this passage that God says is raising him up? It's the Lord. The Lord. God is sovereign. God rules. He rules over good things, and he rules over things that we would view as calamity. And here he says, for behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed. This is further part of the judgment. God is sovereign. The, 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 the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet and all those spoken about in Revelation do nothing more or less than what the living God allows. Just as we see in the book of Job, Satan coming to get permission to afflict Job. Here, this evil shepherd who will devour the the flock and tear apart the fat sheep, he is being raised up by the Lord. And this is further part of the judgment for their rejection of the Messiah. Listen to this description of this person in, in 2 Thessalonians 2. The lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So why is this person coming? It's coming. He's coming because people refuse to love the truth and be saved because you've rejected the good shepherd. The bad shepherd is coming. Therefore, now listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion. You catch that? Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. God, you're, you're saying God would send people a strong delusion so they would believe what is false once they've rejected what is true? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we see here in Zechariah. It's what... 2 Thessalonians says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Or, I told you to keep your thumb in John 12. Go back to John 12. The judgment gets worse. This is a terrible and terrifying passage. Because once we reject truth, we no longer get to determine what lies we will believe. 
Once we close our eyes to the truth, once we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, we're just sitting ducks for error. We had read in John 12, Jesus crying out in verse 35, Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light. You may become sons of light. Give me my wages. Believe in me, he says. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Let's keep reading, though. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. You see the judgment? They refuse to believe in the Messiah, and they reach a point where they no longer can believe. Verse 30. Nine, therefore they could not believe. Once they reject, they've seen the proof. Jesus for three years in front of them, modeling his character, modeling the power of God, showing that he is a true shepherd. When they rejected that, when they still do not believe, the Lord gives them over to their hardened hearts and they cannot believe. When they reject the good shepherd in Zechariah, God gives them a shepherd they deserve, a shepherd they will receive. And God says he is doing it. Because he is sovereign. Because he is sovereign. His divine appointment. Now let's look at his wicked character. This is the anti-shepherd. If you turn over while we read this, keep your thumb here, but turn over or be turning over to Ezekiel 34. He's described his shepherding style, if you will, his philosophy of ministry is summed up as this. He does not care about those being destroyed or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy. But he devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Now, Ezekiel 34, we've looked at this. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible where God rebukes the false shepherds for failing to do their charge. This is exactly what God is angry at with the shepherds here. Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, and the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and the force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and in every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the whole face of the earth with none to search for them. This this foolish shepherd, and you got to think foolish, not in the sense of like silly, like ha ha ha. Foolish as in Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Wicked shepherd, that type of fool. Not jocular or funny, terrifying foolishness. 
devouring the flock, caring nothing for them. And God raises his up, him up as part of the judgment. Not only has Israel rejected the true shepherd, but she will at some point in the future receive. Jesus predicted as much. When one comes in his own name, you will receive him. You see his wicked character. Thankfully, thankfully there is some hope here. It doesn't end there. Despite the fact that the Lord himself is raising him up, the Lord himself will condemn him. We see finally his final condemnation. His final condemnation. And the chapter ends with a curse upon this wicked and worthless shepherd. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. And again, God is able in one passage to say, I'm raising him up and I am cursing and punishing him for doing what I'm raising him up to do. And we put our hands over our mouth and say, God is sovereign. He is God. God says, I'm raising him up and woe to him for doing what he's doing. Because our God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. Woe to the worthless shepherds who desert, worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. What it means by arm is his strength. He's, he's cursing his strength, and, and there's a clear biblical pattern for the eyes of intelligence or of insight, and both are being struck down. Both are to wither and, and to fall away. And again, we see this in, in, in the Scriptures that the Antichrist will be raised up for a time, will be given power for a time, but even in the passage we already looked at in 2 Thessalonians 2, it begins by announcing his destruction. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You see, we get some, some more details of how this is going to work. That The first drama has already been acted out for us. We've seen it back in 33 AD. The second drama is yet to come. And so we have more details. And one of the great and encouraging things is this. Despite the fact that the good shepherd breaks his staffs, annuls his covenant, gives his people over to be devoured, gives his people over to this shepherd, gives his people over to be scattered. When we, when we read the New Testament and we know from Zechariah that this false shepherd will be cursed, who is the one who strikes him down? The good shepherd returns. Good Shepherd returns. It is the Good Shepherd himself, the one who is rejected, the one who is crucified, the one who is killed by his flock. He is the one who returns to deliver them. He is the one who comes and, according to Second Thessalonians, kills him with the breath of his mouth and brings him to nothing. Or in Revelation 19, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet in its presence who had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword. And then Revelation 20.10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. No, to be sure, God will raise up the Antichrist. God will give him for a time the dominion. And God will take it from him. And God will crush him. So, so what are we to make of this? What do, we, what, do we, what do we make of this strange and terrible chapter picturing Israel's darkest hour? Well, I think 
what we should make of it is not to think those, those guys are knuckleheads. That's always the wrong response, right? When you read about people in the Old Testament, people in Scripture doing something wrong, the wrong response is to think to ourselves, oh, those guys are idiots. If I were there, I would have done it differently. But no, Paul warns us, whoa, there's no temptation which overtaken you except what's common to man. Take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. Rather, I think the same danger and the same choice faces every one of us. We have the record of the Good Shepherd's coming. He has performed his services. He has, he has shepherded his flock. He has spoken the word of God to them. He has battled his enemies. He has laid down his life for the sheep. He's done all of that. And I think in a very real sense, he, he speaks to each and every one of us. Give me, if you will, my wages. What do you think that's worth? He's not looking for money. He's looking for faith. He's looking for, he's looking for fidelity. He's looking for love. That same choice is, is for each and every one of us. How, how will we estimate him? John, in, in chapter 1, makes that same point. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. Right? So we know what Israel did. And then he turns his but to as many who would receive him. So he came to his own. He said, hey, it's good in your sight. What, is, what, what am I worth? You're worth the price of a common slave. Here you go, Judas. 30 pieces of silver. That, that's what he's worth. And then it turns to us. What do we esteem him as worth? And the same threat and the same danger if we reject him, if we say, well, he's a good teacher. He's, he's worth a good teacher's pay. Or he's got a lot of good moral things to say. Or he's, he's, I, he's a role model for me. Is he the Lord God? Is he your Savior and your Lord and your God and your King? Will you follow him as sheep follow a shepherd? And if the answer to that is no, then beware. Because we see through the Bible that when people turn from truth, they become sitting ducks for error. In uh, 2 Timothy 4.4, Paul talks about people who turn from the truth and are turned aside into errors. And God will, in the future, give a strong delusion to those who rejected the truth so that they'll believe what is false. So today, today is the day to believe in what is true. Today is the day to not make Israel's mistake. That The good news is this isn't the last we see of Israel. This isn't the last we see of the false, of the, of the true shepherd, I'm sorry. He returns in the next chapter of Zechariah. And Israel is restored in the next chapter of Zechariah. But this is the low point for Israel. This is the lowest point of their rejection, of their faithlessness, and of God giving them over to judgment. So now we have to decide what, what wages Jesus is worth to us. Is he worth our faithfulness? Is he worth our love? Is he worth our obedience? Is he worth our praise? Well, as we consider that question, I'm going to call the worship team up for our final song, which looks to the, the, the terrible cost that was paid for our salvation and the invitation that God gives to all who would have this Messiah, who would have this shepherd to come. Come. No one gets turned away. Jesus says, come unto me. I'm going to turn no one away. But woe unto those who reject him and esteem him lightly.